Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Yes, indeed. Welcome back to What on Earth, the podcast that asks the big question, what on earth is going on as Australia and the world transitions to a post-carbon world? Each episode, Tenet, Paul and I look at the big issues facing Australia. Uh, We look at it from different angles and we try to find clarity in the chaos, especially from a business perspective. We look at what is happening under the earth, above the earth, in Australia and around the world. My name is James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chains at the Australian Industry Group. And joining me uh, each episode are my two amigos. Firstly, Tenet Reid, the Director of Energy and Environment, Australian Industry Group. Hello, Tenet. G'day. And Paul Hodgson, the well-respected industry commentator, board member and CEO, uh, who has a special focus on innovation and change. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Good to be back. Looking forward to the discussion. Uh, me too. In, in recent weeks, we've seen Australia introduce legislation into federal parliament to start moving more, more specifically to a post-carbon economy. And even the US has passed legislation to start the journey to post-carbon. So there's a lot happening. We've got a lot to talk about. And, and that means it's very timely that we're going to be joined later in the show by our special guest, the first, time, the first one for a while. Uh, we're going to be joined by Phil Richardson from Stanwell Corporation a major hydrogen project in central Queensland. And, he, and he's going to join us to talk about all things hydrogen. In fact, um, I suggest we do something different. I'm going to hand over the magic hosting microphone to Tenet. And he can drill Paul and, and, and Phil uh, and do a deep dive into the hydrogen industry and what it means for business in Australia. I look uh, it's forward been a to ultimate power. Yeah, it's been a while since we did a deep dive. And you're the man, you're the diving expert. So. I'm looking forward to hearing what happens. Uh, first, though, let's catch up. It's been a while. Uh, our band of travellers continue to travel. Uh, Tenant, you're recently come back from the Sydney Energy Forum, uh, which I gather was one hell of a good event. What have you got to tell us? Uh, what was it like? What did you learn? What were the highlights? I gather everyone that was anyone was there, apart from you, the Prime Minister, Twiggy Forrest, Alan Finkel. Everyone was there, host of politicians, people from around the world. What was it like? So this was uh, Alan Finkel's brainchild. Uh, The previous government committed to it. The current government carried it out and it brought together. It was basically an energy outgrowth of the Quad uh, Forum of Japan, India, the US and Australia. So starting from a place of uh, security and geopolitics, growing out into energy security, and it had a huge focus on how do we grow the supply chains? Like it's a subject matter very near and dear to this podcast's heart. How do we grow the supply chains that we need to achieve the scale of energy transition involved globally in net zero? And how do we diversify those supply chains? Because like the Quad is a grouping, but notably China is not a member of the Quad. Uh, but China is pretty important to how the members of the Quad feel about each other. And China is a key part of the supply chains for clean energy today. I think if there was a, a common message from that event, it was that uh, what China has done and is doing for clean energy supply chains and, and transition is great. But the vast growth that is now needed uh, in the minerals, in the minerals processing, in the machinery and equipment, in the services and skills to deliver more of that transition, it can't all come from China, both to avoid a single point of failure, uh, but also the, uh, the geopolitical tensions that, are, that are, have been quite intense recently just highlight how uh, countries will not want to have that much dependence on um, a a country with whom they have sometimes some disputes, certainly some differences of values. So how do you actually translate, though, that intention for larger, more diverse supply chains into concrete stuff actually happening? And there were, for instance, some interesting messages from the Queensland Energy Minister uh, spruiking the agreement to a conversation uh, among Australian energy ministers on um, 
uh, how to coordinate the pipeline of energy projects that their policies are, are bringing about, coordinate that so as to drive a steadier pipeline of demand for locally supplied content so that you can get more investment in production within Australia. Great sentiment. I was left pretty unsure whether Lily D'Ambrosio and Matt Keane, for example, would completely agree with Nick DeBrenny's take on which stuff was best made in Queensland versus which uh, the southern states might like to be a part of making too. I think getting that um, uh, national interest and integration with global supply chains where we need to make a difference uh, is it's going to be quite tricky to to actually coordinate all the ambitions that everybody's got. I, I feel like I should go to you, Paul, for a comment on that because that was a, a pretty good uh, intro. What do you think about these global supply chains, um, geopolitics, energy, source efficiency? Oh, it's nice to see a, a, a nice, easy question to start with, yeah. uh, Dave. Off, um, off, the, look, off the top. Look, and I wasn't at the Sydney Energy Forum, but when I was in Malaysia recently, I was with people who were at the Sydney Energy Forum. So I got a little bit of a summary, which, which really helped in some of our discussions between Australia and Malaysia and some of the similarities and challenges and opportunities. Um, look, the global supply chain stuff is, is really, really tight. Um, we're, we're, we're seeing that and, and what we've seen in the hydrogen space particularly is a real interest in manufacturing much more in Australia. Um, that opportunity is absolutely live. Uh, not only do we have the critical minerals here and we have some advanced manufacturing capability, um, but we, we can't build what we need to build by importing all of the technology. It's just not going to happen. Um, and the opportunity, the International Energy Agency last year said 27 US trillion dollars by 2050 of new electrolyzers, fuel cells, battery packs, solar panels, and um, wind towers. Um, I'd love to see us build at least a couple of trillion dollars worth of that in Australia. Um, whether that's with international, just a lazy few trillion here or there. He says it easily, doesn't he? Yeah, just well, you know, I mean, Australia, Australia, we should be able to do it, right? If you look at the ingredients of what goes into those, um, both the soft ingredients in terms of uh, uh, you know the the incentives and the regulatory space and the workforce, and then the hard stuff around the materials and the minerals and the energy, um, we we should be able to do this. Um, and I think there is a growing realization, and, and we're heartened by uh, with our CRC bid talking to a number of uh, OEMs, global OEMs, who are genuinely keen on now building here because they realize that they can't get product out of their factories globally here to satisfy the demand of what's going to happen in Australia. Um, and that is going to be really important for a lot of the listeners in the supply chain who provide you know, everything from fabrication services uh, to, uh, to elect electrical systems to componentry and other things. You know, I would say keep, keep an eye out and keep engaged uh, because those opportunities are going to be coming up quicker than, I, than perhaps I would have thought even a year ago. That was a, a great answer off the, uh, off the cuff there, Paul. Thank you very much. Um, before I get to, to your news, I have some news, and we've started uh, another AI group podcast called Supply Circles. And I mentioned that here because in a recent episode, I uh, interview um, Dr. Jeff Wilson, uh, and we talk about the China plus one policy. Yes, you still need to source from China, but you need to be sourcing from somewhere else. And some aligned company, countries are doing very well out of it. Vietnam is probably going to do well, Malaysia, some others. Uh, as part of that, I was in Canberra recently talking about supply chains and Taiwan. What would happen if there was some sort of problem with uh, with Taiwan between particularly the US and China. And the answer is it's not so much Taiwan's that's, that's our problem, it's China <laughs> that's the problem. If there is a dispute, a geopolitical, uh, geopolitical dispute, China's going to be a problem for us. Taiwan we can probably live without to a large degree. Uh, check out Supply Circles if, uh, if people want to talk, hear more about that. Paul, you mentioned before that you're doing a bid for CRC. I see from your LinkedIn post that you have been bouncing all around the, the place. You've been back to living in 
uh, Qantas clubs or, or airport clubs putting the bid together. Regular listeners to the show will know what a CRC is, but perhaps you should talk about it. It is the scaling green hydrogen CRC bid. Again, regular listeners will know, but just talk about what's green hydrogen, what are you trying to scale, uh, and what's the CRC, and how's it going? Yeah, thanks, James. Look, without taking up too much time, um, yes, look, we're working on a uh, cooperative research centre bid. It's been a bit delayed, the round this year, um, uh, understandably due to uh, an incoming new government, new industry minister, and a lot of uh, big challenges happening out uh, in the world. Um, But we're building momentum. Um, Hydrogen, green hydrogen is a part of the hydrogen story, and hydrogen is part of the decarbonisation toolkit that we have. Um, I've been uh, working on this for about 10 months, but the wider team has been working on this for about 18 months. And really what we're looking at doing is how do we build the foundations for a successful green hydrogen sector? Um, We all know how to do electrolysis, which is the main way of uh, producing green hydrogen by by splitting water with with electricity um, and using low cost uh, wind and solar um, with water to create a green chemical and fuel through green hydrogen and other derivatives will be really important to finish the job of decarbonisation that direct electrification can't get to. Uh, So it'll both partner and augment uh, uh, the the growth of the renewable sector. Um, The the sector will be as strong as the weakest link. So what what we are doing is putting a diverse group of people together looking at all the aspects of that value chain to make sure that as a diverse team of committed leaders, uh, they can work and work together and co-design practical solutions, which will actually help scale and replicate uh, what we can do in green hydrogen. At the moment, we've got one uh, 1.25 megawatt electrolyzer is the largest operating electrolyzer in the country. Uh, We're backcasting for say one terawatt of electrolysis by 2040. And what would that foundation of that sector look like? What would it look like for electricity, for water, for electrolyzer and fuel cell technology, for transport infrastructure, um, and for the uh, uh, for the the greening of the chemicals sector as well? Uh, a lot of people don't realise, but about 100 million tonnes of hydrogen is already produced globally. Um, just about all of it is is um, produced by steam methane reformation uh, using methane, um, and that principally goes into ammonia for fertilizers and other chemicals such as explosives and also into petrochemical refining. Um, we think green hydrogen will be able to re- help replace those with a low emission or zero emission alternative, um, but also will be able to uh, go into further areas of fuel substitution and also other chemicals such as polymers um, and even help in the refining of things like sustainable aviation fuel. Um, so by bringing together, you know, the ingredients, I guess, of the sector with some of the potential applications and scaling them in sync uh, with communities, with supply chains, with a workforce, with regulations and finance, um, we think we'll be able to hopefully take a few years off the growth of the, off the, off the development of the industry um, and also uh, maximise the opportunity for Australia. But it is a global industry. I've been travelling around um, and I'm sure uh, uh, Tennant and later on Phil will both agree as well that this is a global industry. Uh, probably got bags under our eyes from late night or early morning video calls if we're not traveling. Um, and it's great to see much more collaboration happening across the sector as people realize they can't do everything themselves. Yeah, and, and that's a great uh, segue into the conversation with Tennant and Phil later on regarding the hydrogen industry and, you know, the exponential growth that we're starting to see. You also mentioned the scaling and uh, time pressures. So before we get there, just to put it in context, recently in July, the federal government introduced uh, a bill, the new federal government introduced a bill into the House that commits Australia to a more ambitious 2030 target. Uh, Australia has now committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 43% below 2005 levels by 2030. And this is a 15% increase on the previous targets. Uh, the bill also reaffirms Australia's commitment to net zero by 2050. It commits the government to providing an annual statement to Parliament 
on the progress towards these targets. And it restores Australia's Climate Change Authority um, as being the source of independent policy advice. It's quite a significant piece of legislation. The business community overall has welcomed the news, saying it now gives a greater level of certainty to our business landscape. Tenet, let's look at it from the policy issues and then I'll get a comment from Paul on the economic development side. From the policy issues, what was your reaction? Uh, are these good developments? Is it going to achieve it? And, and can we achieve it? So the, the bills are good. There's two bills. There's one that sets out these, uh, these changes to Im, uh, embed the 2030 target to set some process around considering updates to that target and how future targets uh, for 2035, 2040 and so on are selected with that independent advice uh, and the, the transparency process and so on. It's accompanied by uh, a set of consequential amendments which basically tell uh, a number of other government entities that have got their own legislation that sets out their purposes, tells them to have a look at the emissions targets as part of doing their work. And so this is some obvious candidates like Clean Energy Finance Corporation, uh, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, the Greenhouse and Energy Minimum Standards legislation. But it's also got some, uh, some other bodies that you might not have immediately thought of but actually are quite relevant here. So the Export Finance and Investment Corporation can look to the emissions targets. Uh, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund can look to the emissions targets. And so overall, what this is doing, but across these two bills, if they pass, and it looks all but certain at this point that they will pass, given the support that they've received in the lower house from the Australian Greens, uh, they will need one more vote in the Senate if the Greens hold to that position and the, uh, the government is likely to be able to get that vote from Senator David Pocock. So what this means is the, the legislation of itself won't achieve the targets. It simply sets them, sets a process for saying how we're doing and requires some independent advice. And it helps make the whole of government a bit more coherent on this subject. Um, we have had a lot of instances in over the decades, really, not just like during the last term of government or even the last uh, 10 years. We've had a lot of instances of the left hand of government acting at cross purposes to the right hand of government when it comes to climate policy and uh, getting them all singing from the same song sheet, as well as giving a, a clear steer to uh, to industry and investors about where uh, all this is going is, is genuinely very helpful. So we're still going to have a lot of debate and argument about specific implementing policies, the, uh, the safeguard mechanism, uh, the $20 billion fund for connecting renewables with new transmission, uh, the National Reconstruction Fund and all the things, including advancing clean energy industry transition, you know, all of those things are going to be complicated and hard fought, but having a, a big swathe of the parliament come together and say, this is where we're going and we're going to hold ourselves to count on how we're doing um, is a substantial step forward. So um, organisationally, we've been supportive of that and um, we're not... We're not Robinson Crusoe on that. There's been quite a lot of support for this, even though you know there are those out there arguing for uh, harder um, 2030 targets than the 43% cut. Uh, we do have a lot of work to do, even to deliver the 43% cut. Uh, and the deeper targets are that are going to follow uh, are also going to be... Um, very hard work, not just in the electricity sector, but really every sector is going to uh, see some significant transformation over the next three decades. Paul, uh, in our previous, in our last um, episode, you argued for a, a more coherent approach to the economy to achieving um, post-carbon. Does this help? Oh, look, certainly it helps. And, and I was just reflecting actually that 10 years ago, 
uh, I was working for a uh, for the federal climate change minister when we had a carbon price, uh, so a decade ago. Um, and it looked, I mean, I there are people that say it doesn't go far enough, um, and I I think in some ways that's that's likely true. But I think you take the steps, you take the victories, and you build on those steps. Um, I love analogies, so I'm kind of thinking, you know, if I was looking to lose 10 kilograms, the first five kilograms are going to be easier. And I think it's a little bit like that in reducing emissions. Um, the early stuff is going to be much easier than you think than the later stuff, which might actually require different business models or different technologies uh, to actually do that, particularly in some of those uh, hard to abate areas where places where things like green hydrogen are looking to play a role. Um, I think from an economic development perspective, uh, you know, Tennant's absolutely right. It's actually how the implementation of the policy and the, the overall holistic sense of how this comes together is going to be really important, um, uh, which will come right down to things like local content in some of the, the investments that are being made, how it links with enterprise development programs and innovation programs and research programs and skilling programs. Um, but it's certainly a really good sign. Um, because it does create um, an alignment much more between the Commonwealth and the states and territories. Um, and it also then does, um, I think, look to show a much more stable environment for investment, uh, which will be, which is good news all around. Yeah, the analogy is true, isn't it? Uh, if you if you want to lose 10 kilos over 20 months, that's a lot easier than losing 10 kilos over five months, less pain, less difficulty. Uh, and the later we we start on the journey, the harder the the harder it is to achieve. One of the things that we have uh, done in Australia is start developing a significant hydrogen industry. As we talked about, this is going to be important as we head into the uh, the, the post carbon world. So let's get into that and talk about it. I'm really keen to hear this interview between the three of you. Uh, uh, we'll have a break now, and after the break, Tenant, do you want to take over the? the hosting of the magical hosting microphone and talk to Phil and Paul. Looking forward to it. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, Contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. There's a lot going on in hydrogen across Australia. And uh, for a What on Earth interview today, we're going to talk to Phil Richardson, who's the General Manager for New Energy Projects, Growth and Future Energy at Stanwell Corporation. So, Phil, welcome to the podcast. Um, let's start with you. What's your story? How did you get into the hydrogen space? Yeah, well, thanks a lot for having me, Tenant. So my background is in economics and public policy, and I've been working in the energy space for about 10 years now, uh, both from a policy and a commercial angle. So initially that was um, several roles in the Queensland government where I had um, was involved in the Premier's Department and also Queensland Treasury before joining the, the Energy Department. So for several years, I headed up the division that was responsible for energy pricing and also large-scale renewable energy. So that was helping some of the first large-scale renewable projects in Queensland get off the ground. And it's amazing how far we've come since then. Indeed. So I've been with Samuel since 2018 and really been working in the new energy project space ever since then. And so what is Stanwell doing in hydrogen at the moment? What is the, the project that's at the forefront for Stanwell right now? So we're looking to develop a large-scale green hydrogen export project in central Queensland that will also provide hydrogen to domestic industry as well. And that's about trying to leverage our energy expertise and also our growing renewable energy portfolio to help really build an, a new low carbon industry in central Queensland. So we're uh, working with a consortium of five other Japanese and Australian companies mm -hmm. uh, to try and bring all that expertise together across the supply chain. Because we, while we have some expertise, we definitely don't pretend to know all things about producing and shipping hydrogen. And uh, those Japanese partners, 
are they on the uh, ultimately the the buying and use side of the hydrogen economy or uh, in the middle or um how um how locked in is the demand side for this project yeah so we're really lucky to have a great range of consortium partners that have got expertise in all those different areas so they're involved in um, in some case renewable energy in japan as well as in I guess the midstream, what we call our midstream processing of hydrogen, so hydrogen liquefaction, and also in the shipping of hydrogen as well. Plus, we also have some consortium partners that are in planning to use hydrogen for various different um, end uses in Japan. So that's in things like power generation. So it's really covering that whole gamut of the supply chain. In terms of how locked in is the the user user end in Japan? Well, I'd say it's becoming increasingly firm. And certainly it's looking a lot firmer than it did a couple of years ago when we started our first concept study. I guess in that time we've had first the uh, the Japanese government's commitment to net zero by 2050 and then a, uh, an evolution of their national energy plan that involves uh, a, a significant increase in the role for hydrogen this decade. And then we've had LNG prices and coal prices go to the moon and, and not yet back. So mm. it, it is a pretty good sign. How yes. big would this project be at the currently planned scale in terms of uh, the amount of hydrogen output? And, and if you can relate that to the equivalency of more familiar energy sources for our, our listeners. Sure, sure. So phase one of our project, which was aiming to reach commercial operations at the end of 2026. We're aiming mm -hmm. to produce 100 tonnes per day of hydrogen, and that'll require about 300 megawatts of electrolysis capacity. So that's sort of, for the electricity people out there, that's about the amount of energy input that's needed to produce that 100 tonnes per day of hydrogen. And then 2031, we're looking to move into phase two, and that's moving up to 800 tonnes per day of hydrogen production and looking at probably two and a half to 3,000 megawatts of electrolysis capacity. So it is a significant, it's a very energy intensive process that uh, is involved in producing hydrogen. So that'd be uh, what nearly 300, at, at the 2031 scale, nearly 300,000 tonnes a year. That's exactly right. Yep. And uh, so that would be uh, a few multiples of the um, statewide hydrogen target that New South Wales legislated recently, for instance. Yes. Uh, so pretty big compared to what there is today, it is, which is not it's much. very big. No, exactly right. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a funny thing, hydrogen, because uh, this kind of project looks massive compared to the installed capacity. If you look at Australia, I think at the moment, the biggest electrolyzer we've got is 1.25 megawatts, mm. and we're looking to scale it up to 300. But then if you look at where the demand's heading and how much hydrogen we'll need to even replace a small portion of, say, Japan's electricity consumption, um, then it's going to require many times this project to, to achieve that. So looking at the, the potential size of the market for clean hydrogen, there's a lot of different estimates out there and a very wide range between the, the lowest and the highest. What do you think is plausible or, or do you think that the uncertainty actually is is going to be with us for a while yeah i think it the uncertainty will be there and i think it it probably as much as anything it's about when we think this demand is going to happen so mm. 2030 for example in terms of the ability to ship hydrogen in large volumes there's a lot of debate around how much will that really be happening in the next eight years Japan, they've got a target of 3 million tonnes per annum of hydrogen by 20, um, 2030. Mm -hmm. um, and then globally, I think the there's estimates of maybe 90 million tonnes by 2050. So they're, they're the kind of estimates that we're looking at, but really it's about yeah, how quickly can this industry get off the ground? Some people are saying that that will get off the ground quicker and by 2026, 2027, you'll actually see millions of tonnes of hydrogen being shipped around the world, probably in the form of ammonia, but yeah. uh, yet, yet, yet to materialise. There's, uh, there's around 90 million tonnes a year of, of grey hydrogen demand uh, for 
uh, petrochemicals for the, the chemical sector, tiny bit of rocketry uh, today. Uh, but yes, a, a barely a fraction of that for green as yet. But as you say, plenty of prospect growth. So looking at some of the other projects that are proposed, if the demand is there, um, how big do you think that uh, Queensland's broader um, hydrogen sector might be? And do you have a view on how many of the, the projects that people are hearing about have, uh, how many of them are as close to reality as yours? <laughs> well, if I knew that, um, Tenet, I'd probably be a, a much richer man than I am at the moment. Um, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> um, I guess you can only you can only go by um, by what you see in the media and by the the credibility of those those projects and and the stage that they're at. I think that we're going to see several distinct phases of development with this industry. So, when we talk about our initial scale of our project in 2026, that will probably be connected to the grid. We'll have a, a connection to the electricity grid. And we think that most of those initial projects will be grid connected. So it probably it probably constrains how big they can be. And it also constrains how fast they can happen. But we think it's going to be important because of the need to run those electrolyzers fairly hard. So how many of those are there around Australia? Well, there's, there's plenty being talked about. Um, but I'd be surprised if there were more than probably half a dozen to 10 of those that would get off the ground before 2030. I think there's actually a number of studies being done. For example, um, recently some studies done in Tasmania, which indicated that they probably weren't going to get off the ground before 2030, just because of mm -hmm. infrastructure constraints. So there's only so, so many places you can actually, where the infrastructure is ready for this scale of project within the next eight years. So I think that, you know, that probably gives you an indication, half a dozen to 10 maybe of those initial projects. Beyond that point though, I think we're going to see a very different configuration, which will be um, large off-grid um, off projects where people are connecting their renewables directly into the electrolyzers and probably taking advantage of more remote regions, whether that be in places like Western Australia or Queensland and uh, less integrated with the existing energy network. And, and, and I mean, the scale of those projects is almost limitless when you think about the, uh, the size of our landmass, the amount of renewables we've got. But clearly then things like water become a constraint. And so mm. people are going to have to start looking at desalination or other, other ways of sourcing their water. And is that, uh, that mega scale future, is that one where it still makes sense to make hydrogen, do the electrolysis as close as possible to the point where it's used or exported um, in, the, in the case of export demand? rather than make it where the renewables are and pipe it to somewhere else? There's a, a, a big debate going on around pipelines versus power lines. Um, and I wouldn't say that, that that debate's been settled yet. It really does depend, I think, um, on, on what the, the configuration is, what the end use is. I think that when you talk about mega scale projects, then co-location, of the hydrogen production with the renewable energy, I think is, is more likely. Mm -hmm. And you'll probably see some fairly sizable pipelines being built. Um, but the flip side of that is, you know, somewhere like central Queensland, for example, it may make more sense to have um, high voltage direct current transmission being built. If your renewables are a long way from the coast, uh, potentially that HVDC could become a factor as well. So I, I think there's gonna be a, a, a range of different solutions rolled out depending on the, the geography and the location of all the different resources and what where the bottlenecks or infra infrastructure constraints are. There's uh, one version of our hydrogen development story where hydrogen electrolysis is providing a bunch of services to the, well, you could call it the wider grid. It might be the, the rest of electricity demand might be quite small in comparison to a future hydrogen industry but providing services through interrupting the electrolysis process. How interruptible is electrolysis? How quick to respond to swings in the, the wider market is it? And, and how enthusiastic do you think uh, a, a hydrogen sector would be about providing grid services for a fee? It's a really interesting point because in the 
Australian energy market operators recent ISP, they in their hydrogen superpower scenario, they looked at the growth of a hydrogen export industry and the, the view that that would all be connected to the grid. We think it's probably difficult to see a world where all of these large scale projects are connected to the grid because the, the scale of that load is so much bigger than the existing energy system. And so that, that interruptibility and flexibility of electrolyzers is a benefit when you're talking about it being, you know, a portion of the grid, but not overwhelming the grid. But once it becomes very large, potentially that actually is a, is a disbenefit. So we think that um, eventually that interruptibility and flexibility will be used in an off-grid setting to match, again, match the variable renewables with the electrolyzers, and it will be less about providing grid services. But as I said earlier, the initial projects like the our 300 megawatt, we think that will be very important in providing those services because effectively it gives you a lot of the benefits of energy storage through a demand side response without having to outlay the initial capex of building, say, a battery. In terms of how flexible is it, it really depends on the technology. So we've got alkaline electrolyzers, which have a ramp rate of probably, or sorry to use uh, energy um, jargon, but they can probably change their load at the rate of about uh, 4% per second up to a, a proton exchange membrane electrolyzer, which probably has a ramp rate of around 10% per second. There's also a difference in how, whether they can switch on and off. Alkaline, you can't switch it on and off. You have to use it at a, at a minimum load of between 20 and 40% um, as a minimum. And PEM, you can switch it on and off more easily. So some of those electrolyzers are very flexible. Not as flexible as probably a lithium-ion battery, but a heck of a lot more flexible than most other energy loads that are out there. So one way of thinking about the um, ISP hydrogen superpower scenario, um, which you know compared to the the scale of of some hydrogen visions is is not that big, uh, is well maybe that's just the fraction of a mega industry that is grid connected, and there's something uh, or several somethings many times the size of the NEM in terms of, of total output anyway, um, elsewhere doing, doing its own thing, but of no direct concern to AEMO. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see, yeah. Let's go. <laughs> um, so there's also, of course, in the hydrogen space, uh, people with some high hopes for or um, great concern about uh, the notion of blue hydrogen, hydrogen produced from the uh, reformation of fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage. Um, do you see um, a, a, a place or a, a future for blue? Do you think that that um, place uh, or, or prospect has changed as a result of the um, upheaval in global energy markets around the war in Ukraine? Well, I think the, the prospects of blue hydrogen have certainly become less favorable in the short term with um, you know the increase in in gas prices whether that will remain in the medium to long term isn't clear hmm. from our perspective we think that green hydrogen has better long-term prospects um, because of its uh, the ability to produce you know, very low emissions hydrogen and um, the potential cost reduction and also the the customer sentiment that we're seeing behind green as well but having said that, we we don't um, we don't think that blue hydrogen um, is is out of the question. We see that there's reasons why countries like Japan are looking to blue hydrogen as a as a diversification, as a way to potentially get uh, supply on board earlier. But I guess you know the the, the history of um, of carbon capture and storage is such that you know, yeah that's yet to be deployed at large scale successfully as well. So I think it's one of those. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see. Uh, you know how and uh, at what scale blue hydrogen can can get off the ground. So for blue hydrogen clean, it comes down to the uh, upstream emissions and the capture rate of the um, the the transformation process. For for green hydrogen or electrolytic hydrogen, it comes down to uh, in large part the uh, emissions intensity of the um, electricity mix that that goes into it. What does um, certification or, or, or providing confidence about the, um, the ultimate emissions outcome look like for hydrogen? How, how will people have confidence in this? 
Yeah, it's a really important point. And I think the, there's a lot of work happening um, both in Australia and in other jurisdictions around the world to design guarantee of origin schemes and to work out a, a consistent way of actually defining what the emissions um, footprint is of the of the hydrogen. In Australia, there's work happening through the, the federal government on the guarantee of origin scheme, and we're certainly staying very close to that work. Um, what that looks like at the moment is that you know, it'll it'll piggyback off a lot of the existing mechanisms that we use, like the renewable yeah. energy legislation and renewable energy regulator, to to track and um, I suppose um, um, you know validate where the renewables are coming from, and that's quite good from our perspective because we're we're very accustomed to that legislation and that framework. I think the the challenge will be, or the the task will be, linking that up internationally so that because ultimately. I think a lot of our hydrogen will be going overseas um, as, a, as a country um, to link those schemes internationally so that there can be consistency. Obviously, there, there are um, uh, a range of international frameworks that are used for, for tracking emissions. And so I think as long as those are applied consistently, um, we'll end up in a, in a good space. But I, I also think there will be different levels of stringency applied across jurisdictions as well. And we're already starting to see that out of Europe, that the some of the European guarantee of origin schemes are quite strict, particularly in relation to matching of renewable production with hydrogen production. And uh, the fact that you know, a lot of those emerging schemes are requiring you know, day by day or hour by hour matching between those sources, whereas that, that is quite a departure from the way that renewable energy is, um, is, is tracked in Australia, if you like, under our RET. We just do... Uh, comparisons of annual demand versus annual LGCs, or or the the um, how much renewables was generated, and say, well, it all works out, which is exactly pretty right. crude. Yeah, it is. It is pretty crude. So, for a hydrogen potential hydrogen producer like us, we need to be ready to potentially evolve, you know, our approach over time um, to make sure that we're not going to be um, left stranded by changing. Guarantee of origin requirements. Mm. Although, as the um, the wider, assuming that grid connected remains relevant, as the wider grid itself evolves, and uh, the federal government expects more than eighty percent uh, of um, electricity output in the uh, in the nation to be renewable by twenty thirty, we'll see. Uh, that eases the, the the task of doing this accounting. So one last question. It's not in any way a difficult or curly one. We've had one big energy revolution in terms of um, development of a massive export market in the, in the last decade or so, LNG exports from Eastern Australia. Um, the hydrogen revolution could be um, even bigger than that in the long term. What lessons do you think we should draw from the LNG experience in terms of um, both managing the, um, the growth impact on um, regions and um, on uh, markets for, for labour and materials, but also the relationship between domestic energy use and export of energy? Easy one. Yeah, nice simple one to finish on. Yeah, I guess that's one advantage that we have, um, but also makes the challenge a lot more real, is basing our project in Gladstone, because Mm. we get the benefit of quite a few very experienced heads who've been through this before and have a whole list of lessons learned that they like to remind us about, which we're we're grateful for being reminded of. And I think there's a whole range of different areas, and we're probably only starting to really scratch the surface of this. One, One element, I think, is being able to show that the industry from an energy perspective that the hydrogen industry is providing a benefit to domestic decarbonisation as well as the decarbonisation of our trading partners. So that's Mm. something we're very conscious of with trying to foster domestic demand for hydrogen in a place like Gladstone alongside the, the export market as well. So that could be something as simple as, you know, with ammonia, for example, looking at how can we use some green ammonia to displace domestic supply as well as exporting ammonia as well. Could be things like using hydrogen in heavy transport locally, um, 
ferries, buses, etc. Another area is um, with the labour market. We've we've had some interesting discussions around the impact of local um, requirements on projects to source local labour and mm. the impact that that can have on some other local businesses. So how do you balance that so that you're not creating, I suppose, a, a perverse outcome of all the local labour being sucked into the new industries and, and nothing being left over for the existing local businesses? So they're the kind of areas where, you know, well-meaning targets that companies put on themselves can um, lead to some perverse outcomes if we're not careful. Mm. So there's, that's, just, uh, that's just the starting point. I think the, the other one is just the, that this industry is going to be different. Um, it's not economically and commercially, it is more challenging than LNG. And yep. so projects like ours have to work with other proponents around things like common user infrastructure. We can't yeah. afford to actually go and build everything from scratch ourselves and just ignore everyone else. So I think some of those issues around duplication of infrastructure will be, should be better with hydrogen, partly because we've learned the lessons and partly because necessity. Yeah. I mean, as it turned out, the LNG guys couldn't afford that either, but they did it anyway and <laughs> That's right. then wrote off the value. Yeah, exactly right. Um, thank you, Phil. Uh, we'll be really excited to see what happens uh, with Stanwell's project uh, and with the, the future development of it and uh, the, the whole industry. And hopefully we can get you back again uh, to talk about what did happen um, after the, the project has been, uh, at least stage one, has been delivered. That's great. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Tenet. Well done, Tenet. Thank you for uh, for hosting that part of the section. It's good to have a guest. Good to have someone who is hands uh, or elbows up in the in the current project. Paul, what did you uh, think about some of the the comments that that uh, Phil was making? Do you, do you think that he was right about his prediction to the future, which was I'm sidestepping it? <laughs> Well, look, I think anyone that tries to predict the future is is uh, destined to make a fool of themselves, particularly in anything like hydrogen or the energy transition. Um, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of reports you can read um, and a lot of uh, prognosis, but uh, but it's it's uh, it's it, it's a very difficult area. Um, I think the export domestic stuff's really interesting. Um, how much will be export? How much will be domestic? I've been reading some recent reports. Um, IRENA and DNV's report both see uh, not a lot of tradable hydrogen, um, certainly the way we've seen coal and oil and gas traded uh, globally, um, uh, which is interesting. But it's also been one of the things that I've been thinking about for a number of years, which is for Australia, what is the opportunity? Will we replace the number of pet the amount of petajoules of, of energy that we export with molecules or electrons? Or will we actually uh, need to replace that with technology and services? Because when we're looking at things like electrification and we're looking at things like green hydrogen, um, we are talking about much more distributed electricity and water and therefore uh, more modular distributed technology um, could be deployed rather than very large centralized production and export. Um, so, so I think that's a, a real question mark still for me is about how much we'll export um, and will it replace the amount of petajoules uh, that we currently export out of Australia in coal and gas. And just to finish up, I might throw your question back at you, uh, Tenant. Have we learnt lessons from the LNG ramp up of uh, 10 to 15 years ago that we can use in the hydrogen ramp up? So I think that the... It was um, pretty uh, telling that, um, that Phil went first to the, the lessons of coordination around the actual build-out uh, because those, those are much less controversial than issues around um, uh, do we need to or, or, or should we uh, have some kinds of, uh, of safeguard or, um, or guardrail for domestic users when we're building up uh, an export industry. The coordination stuff, like that is a very good idea to learn some lessons there. We had uh, three mega uh, LNG export terminals with total duplication and no mutual coordination whatsoever. And that meant much bigger issues for um, 
the the level of demand on construction, the cost of infrastructure, uh, all those projects wound up writing down their value substantially not long after they were completed, in part because they'd all had a rush of blood to the head and uh, they hadn't uh, done anything to get the most efficient deployment of that massive infrastructure and, and investment involved. But when we think about the um, the exports versus domestic use question, I think we're still in the midst of um, dealing with the, the fallout of the Queensland LNG expansion on that front. Uh, as we speak, it's not so long ago that the ACCC uh, warned that the east coast of Australia could have an absolute gas shortage in 2023. And the supply side uh, is, is still in the midst of denying that that's actually a risk or not. It's uh, night and day different accounts uh, about just what's going on today and, and next year. Um, but we, we, we better handle it, like one way or another, we better handle it more successfully than we have on the LNG front or we'll be having some pretty fierce arguments about hydrogen usage in 2035. Look, and I'd, I'd add to that, I think um, absolutely that's one of the lessons to be learned. But I think in things like green hydrogen, given that we're talking about domestic industries of fresh water and renewable electricity, uh, then that it's not even thinking potentially about a reservation system for green hydrogen. Uh, the social license of pulling electrons out of, uh, for example, uh, consumers' uh, uh, hands uh, through the grid or taking fresh water and exporting it um, are going to be much more acute uh, than even the gas discussions have been. So I think it has to be baked in right from the start in one way or another. Mm. Another fascinating conversation, guys. Absolutely fascinating. Our goal is to try and find clarity in the chaos. I think we unpacked some good issues today. It was just occurring to me that these are quite meaty uh, issues that we address every every episode. And the last couple of episodes, we've, we've looked at government policy. We've looked at nuclear, hydrogen, social license. I feel like we should have a Simpsons episode where we just... Rather than interview Phil, we, we'd go to the Simpson and ask them what they would have said about these issues. Let's think about that for next time. Been great chatting, guys. Uh, catch you soon. See ya. Thanks, James. Thanks, Tennant.